Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This year we're talking about two ends of a continuum, being stoned and being aggressive, but not in the same person. First up, consuming cannabis while pregnant and the likelihood of having a child with ASD. Back when I was at Rutgers teaching summer school, I taught a class called Drugs and Human Behavior. It was a hit in the summer school students, let me tell you. But one of the things I covered was how some recreational drugs affected offspring if taken during pregnancy. At the time, and I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, there really wasn't that much known about cannabis exposure during pregnancy and child outcomes. Now, scientists knew smoking was bad because of the effects of the smoke on the fetus, but the effects of THC themselves were somewhat unknown. Same with CBD. Remember, THC is the psychoactive component that gives you the munchies. And CBD is what's being added to everything from hand sanitizer to seltzer for whatever healing or healthy properties they are suggested to be, but not actually proven to be. And scientists were pretty sure it might have some effect on those germ cells. Those are those sperm and egg cells that end up becoming later babies. But back then, Cannabis was really only legal in the Netherlands, and there was not really a good way to track exposures during pregnancy. With the onset of legalization across the world and the advent of edible cannabis rather than just smoking cannabis, it's time to take a look again, not just on things like ASD outcomes, but other outcomes. And in Canada, they recently did that. Ontario has a birth registry, much like the Norland countries, where through a medical insurance database, they can track everything from medical reports to self-report exposures taken at different clinics to outcomes of kids born of those pregnancies. Now, Canada didn't legalize cannabis until 2018, and I'm looking forward to seeing that data and data from states in the U.S. soon, but they did collect information on births before it was legalized. Now, at that time, and that was anywhere between 2007 and 2012, the use was about 0.6% of pregnancies. So they used this registry, which had health insurance information in it, and at the end of the analysis, it included about 500,000 births. Scientists use a fancy-schmancy analysis called coarsened extract matching to match them on a number of different potentially confounding factors like parental age, season of birth, and even presence of preterm births to look at the association between cannabis exposure during pregnancy and outcomes like autism, intellectual disability, and ADHD. Now, because they use this matching program to make sure for every case of someone who had autism, there was someone who didn't have autism that was matched on the same exact parameters, they ended up using 170,000 non-users of cannabis and 2,300 users of cannabis during pregnancy. They found an increased rate of autism spectrum disorder even when no other substances were being reported, and that number was about 1.5. That's the odds ratio. You're about 1.5 times higher of having an autism diagnosis if your mother took cannabis. For every 2.4 per 1,000 kids born with autism who were not exposed to cannabis, four per thousand were born with autism who were exposed to cannabis. Now, this is a statistically significant finding and, of course, concerning. It obviously does not mean, however, that cannabis is the sole cause of autism spectrum disorders. There needs to be more studies, and I'll get to that after my commercial break. 
but there's also an increase in learning disability and intellectual disability that was not as high as the odds of having autism, but it was still there. However, there was no association for ADHD. Okay, here's a quick commercial break. I just want to take a break here and mention something about the word cannabis. Someone came at me last time I did a podcast on this topic and said that the word cannabis was racist, or at least it had racist connotations. After that, I was horrified, so I followed up, and this actually is the scientific term for the word. I'm not using some other terms. I've actually heard that are racist, and I won't name them. So if I'm still wrong, and you know that cannabis has racial connotations, and cannabis is a word that is racist, please email me and provide me some sort of link. Thank you. Okay, back to the podcast. Anyway, this cannabis exposure could be smoking or eating. Who knows? They didn't differentiate. As I mentioned, intensity was not included in the analysis. Also, intensity of use was not included in the analysis. They used this fancy statistical program because actually, as it turns out, there are way more users under the age of 20 than there are non-users. So that's a big confound. Non-users were more likely to be over the age of 35. Users were also more likely to have mood and anxiety disorders and also use cocaine. But again, matching corrected for all of this. Users were also more likely to have a child with a gestational age of younger than 37 weeks, which is considered preterm. So they did a different analysis of that, but the association still held. In other words, the preterm births didn't account for the effect of cannabis exposure during pregnancy on ASD outcome. So first, I'm going to acknowledge the limitations of this paper. No measure of intensity, no measure of frequency, no note on whether it was eaten or smoked, and also the rate of 0.6% is a little low. Other studies reported as much as 5%, even, even during the same years of study. Also, the self-report of cannabis exposure was self-report, so who knows how accurate it really was. However, there seems to be something going on here. No, cannabis is not as harmful to unborn babies as alcohol, heroin, or crack, but stay away from it if you're pregnant, not just because of ASD, but learning disabilities. And there are probably environmental exposures that are way more harmful for your fetus, but don't risk it. As Nancy Reagan says, just say no. A second study this week on the opposite end of being stoned is being aggressive. About 30% of kids with ASD who have severe aggression are not responsive to therapies like antipsychotic drugs that in fact do help people with aggressive and impulsive behaviors. They have no effect. That's in about 30% of the kids who have aggression. Aggression in ASD is the worst against family members or yourself. Now you can't get angry at the person with ASD because you know that they can't control themselves, but that's hardly comforting when your own child is hitting you or getting thrown at a school or another care facility for being aggressive. Having your other kids hide in their rooms because your child with ASD is hurtful to the entire family. And this doesn't seem to be things that telehealth is tackling very well. So these kids may need medication, and luckily there are drugs, but again, 30% of the time, they do not work. These people also end up with mostly specialized care and a very, very low, what is quantified as quality of life. Scientists really need to understand this group with the goal of finding better treatments. A collaboration between researchers and Brazil and Canada took a step this month by examining the brain structure of people who have this refractory aggression, which means 
that medications or therapy is not helping them compared to those who were aggressive but had been treated successfully, at least at the time, with some sort of intervention or treatment. So they looked at the structure all over the brain and found a reduced cortical thickness in those with refractory aggression. That outer layer of the brain, which is known as the cortex, is thinner all over the brain. Here's the caveat. It's actually thicker in some areas. Now, the cortex is responsible for things like executive functioning, mood, and cognition. The areas that were thicker were the ones that usually project to areas that are related to emotion and aggression, like the amygdala and the hypothalamus. What is also interesting is that the pattern differences across ASD in this study were different if you look at the pattern differences in ASD overall versus controls. In other words, the structure of the brain, or at least the nuanced structure of the cortex, varies not only according to diagnosis, but behaviors within that diagnosis. Specific interventions targeting cortical thickness may help people and reduce suffering in this group, but we need to be careful. These treatments need to be focused on refractory aggressive behavior and not autism spectrum disorders overall, because it's not really clear how and if any alterations in these brain areas will affect overall functioning. I know this podcast is short this week, but the summer is short too, so go out there and enjoy yourselves. Also, be sure to listen to a new autism podcast dropping on Wednesday called The Scoop. Search for that on whatever podcast player you use, Apple or Spotify or whatever. It's called The Scoop. Hosts Feta Amaliti and Sarah Troutman talk about everything autism and everyday life, schools, stress, behaviors, coping, and even aggressive behaviors. It's real talk from moms, and it's great. So have a great week, and I'll talk to you next week.